Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I'm doing great today. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. So I hear there's something you want to talk to me about. Yeah, so I have been noodling something in my brain about difficulty and uh, how we reward it and the concept of difficulty. And, And what I've been thinking about recently is that there are things that I can do that people consider really difficult. Like I know I'll get a difficult, high difficulty score. And yet it's really pretty easy to me because I put in the time to learn how to do it. I've spent the time necessary to perfect it and make it accessible to me. But it made me think about how we reward difficulty. Like, are we rewarding the amount of time somebody puts in to perfect something and make it accessible to them? Or are we rewarding the move uh, and so I just been thinking about how that works. And I was just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I've, I've had thoughts about that and conversations about that in the past too, where it does seem like, like, for example, when I first saw a guidus and wanted to try to learn it, it was really hard or even a scarecrow is an even better example. Cause I saw the first time I saw it and I thought that is amazing. And then I tried it and tried it and it probably took me a year and a half before I actually started to catch it. Now I, it's one of my most solid, most reliable catches, both of those catches. And so it's hard to think that that's a difficult catch for me anymore, but I know how hard it was to learn. It's hard to say whether we're really rewarding people for putting in the time versus rewarding the actual catch itself or the actual move itself. Though um, I guess yeah. I kind of lean towards it being the move that we're really, re- we're really rewarding people for. Because even though like, for example, with the guidus, even though I feel like it's pretty easy for me to catch a guidus, it's still easier for me to catch an under the leg. The window's bigger. And so, you know, I, it makes sense that I would get rewarded a little bit more for that. I think maybe there might be two different worlds here that are I'm discussing or I'm, I'm thinking about. One is there's the technical aspect of a move, like doing a turnover. Once you kind of figure out the technical part of it, it really becomes easy. And yet you still get rewarded. So you're getting rewarded for the time you put in to figure out how to make it happen. And then there's the physical stuff, like how many spins do you put in? How consecutive is it? So I guess there might be two different things that I'm thinking about here. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, uh, there is something about um, like restrictions and how restricted something is that changes the difficulty. And then there's also something like how the moves are connected together. So you're talking about a turnover, which is a great example. And a skid is another great example where you really have to practice and figure out exactly the motion to do it. Because unlike a with the spin move, the disc will just sort of do it for you. But with an against the spin move or with a turnover, you really have to do it just right. But once you get that just right, it doesn't seem so hard. But then the next step is, well, I did one, what if I want to do two, or if I want to connect it to something else, or do it with a restriction? And suddenly you realize you're, that the moves themselves are 
introducing these limitations that you have to work around to stitch them all together into something. Yeah, I think that is a good point. I think that maybe when you break it down piece by piece, once you figure it out, technically, it's not that hard. But when you're trying to put pieces together, that's where it starts ratcheting up. Because like you say, skids, once you figure out how to get your body positioned and how to get the angle of the disc, a skid is really kind of just a glorified rim delay once you figure it out how to make it go. But when you start connecting it to a bunch of other skids, then it's like, oh, okay, this is really kind of out there. Yeah, it kind of leads to that that concept of consecutivity, you know, keeping all of the, keeping your moves of difficulty tied together, like building one after the other, after the other, after the other, without a pause, without a reset. That's really, I think, the ultimate in difficulty is uh, adding that consecutivity component to it. Well, speaking of skids, this is actually a perfect segue into our episode today because we are going to continue our conversation with Skippy Jammer, and he's going to talk to us about how he embraced skid technology. So are you the person who invented skids? So I wouldn't say that I never really used the word, well, I shouldn't really use the word invent because I don't think that that really is an honest description of something. I don't think anybody necessarily invents anything. I think we discover it. I think that, that you can discover things simultaneously or you know, at different times. It will come to all of us. It's all waiting for us out there. It's just a question of how can you figure out how to learn this technique or something like that. I saw Kirkland do some skids, but it wasn't registering with me. I was able to look back at some of the old videos and go, oh yeah, he was actually doing a skid there. Um, and some of the New Yorkers, Joey was doing some little uh, some skid work stuff, stuff like that. But what I did was I I was able to to look at it and go, no, that's now my game. Everything is going to be a skid. I'm not doing anything other than just skids, skids and against stuff. Every single move I do is now going to be a skid or an against thing. So I was the first one to really embrace that. I also remember Kirkland coming up to me and said, oh, I figured out what you're doing. I go, well, what's that? And he said, you're the first person that I've ever seen that's playing a game that he can replicate every single time. So what I was doing was I was envisioning what my routine was going to be. I was going, okay, I'm going to do a spinning invert. I'm going to do um, a vacation. I'm going to do a uh, an indigenous catch. I would craft out or plan out what all of my moves were due because I was certain that I was able to to catch those. I had high confidence. I wasn't able to do it every time. For the most part, I was able to. So that was another kind of thing that I brought to the game, and Skids was part of that. I remember the very first time I saw a skid because it kind of blew my mind. I kind of was like, whoa, what was that? And it was Don Fogel at a Vancouver tournament. It might have even been an NAS tournament, but I clearly remember him doing this, you know, right hand behind the back skid. It was, you know, the thing was riding up on the rim. And I was like, what the hell was that? I remember just kind of shook me a little bit, but I clearly remember the first time I saw a skid. Yeah. So with Don Fogle, he would go out of his way to find me every single tournament that we were at because he was always working on things like uh, Jake was able to pull off. Of, what was it? The, the impossible move, the impossible turnover, something like that. Oh, yeah. That was an old Don Fogle move that he never did. But he showed me the concepts of it. So he was always coming to me going, this is what I'm working on. This is what what, what I'm thinking about. Then I would do the same to him. So we were we were riffing back and forth with these new kind of stuff that we were working on. So, so Don had a very creative process and he was very imaginative. Some of the most fun stuff I ever did was doing demos, you know, um, 
you make good money to see the world, you see things differently. And so some of the best demos I ever did was one time I got a, a phone call from this, uh, this Bakersfield Parks and Rec program. And they were uh, doing, uh, they had just put in a brand new nine hole disc golf course and they were doing, making it a big day. So they're going to have a big picnic out there. So Rose and I drive over to Bakersfield and we got paid good money. I think we got 500 bucks. It might've even been 500 bucks each or something like that. It was amazing money. And so we show up for this, uh, we do our demo and then after our show and we played great. And then after our show, it's Bakersfield against Fresno in a game of ultimate. Bakersfield had never beaten Fresno ever in their entire history. So I go, mind if I play with you guys? No, that'd be great. We beat Fresno. They were so ecstatic. You know, they I was I was the star of the game. We we beat Fresno. We're celebrating. And then we do a little tournament and we played the nine holes of the, uh, the new brand new nine holes. And I shoot it's nine holes and I shoot eight under par. I go back and I go, that's how you do a demo. You hit on all levels, so they're never going to forget me after that. Another great demo was Moffett Field Air Base in, um, uh, by Stanford University in, um, by, by San Jose. And they were doing a big kind of picnic ac- activity as well. So, uh, again, we're getting good, paid good money. I get Rose and I get Rodney Sanchez, and we do the show. Um, and then we do this crowd participation thing. And, and so we're, we're going to bring people in to do a speed flow thing. So we, first off, the, the pros are going to do it and show you how it's done. So Rose and Rodney... You have 30 seconds. How many? Um, you get a point for every catch. You get two points if it's a trick catch, and they have 30 seconds. So they they do their thing. I think it's something like 35. I don't know what it was, but it was it was good, really good. And so bring out these kids and everybody. Nobody can match them. There was these two people in costumes, Fred Flintstone and Dino the dog, and they had their their costumes on. I go, okay, let's bring out Fred and Dino. And so they go in. They start doing it, and then. It should be 30 seconds by now, but it's not. And I'm the announcer. And I'm looking at my wrist like I'm really watching the time. And then I'm going, oh, they're within three. They're within two. They catch us. It ties. One more. They win. Five, four, three, two. They catch it. They beat the pros. The place goes crazy. Rodney and Rose come up and they're kind of mad. They're like, what in the heck just happened? That was more than 30 seconds. Looking, I go, cartoon time. Cartoon time. <laughs> made sense after that right uh-huh so now on the other side of this then there's the worst demos of all time and so there's one that came up and i get a phone call from uh stun microsystems at this is in the the 90s i think mid 90s they're a huge company in the silicon valley and so tommy's out of town there's nobody for me to do a show with so he goes no i really think you can do it with tom Salit, tom slick I go, okay, well, there's nobody else. I can't go solo. So I go, Tom, do you want to do the show with me? Slick, let's do the show. He goes, okay, sure. So we show up, and he's struggling. He can't get his nails to glue on. Um, we're ready to go. It, they're calling us on to the stage. It's time to do our show. And he goes, I can't get him to stick. I go, well, then you're playing nailless. You know, we got to do the show. I'll carry us. We go in about 30 seconds into the routine. He drops it, and then he drops to his knees, and he throws up right at the feet of the of these little two ladies oh. who are sitting there on the sideline. I go, time out. And then, okay, you stop the music. Let me gather my friend up. You know, I take him over in the corner, psych him up. Tom, what's going on? I thought you said you were in good shape. He goes, I am in good shape. I go, you know, you're working out a lot. And he goes, look, I'm a roofer. I'm in great shape. 
So if you're lying tile on a roof, then you're like at the, you know, that and high altitude mountaineering is probably the two best things to get you in shape. So um, I psych him up, we go back up, and then he dropped to his knees again. Meanwhile, the lady who, who booked me for the show goes, how much longer until you start? I look and I go, lady, I suggest you lower your level of expectations. This is the show. Was Salad ever able to get it together to do any frisbee no. or did he, he no. just... He was boot. Went, he was just I booting, just went, and that was it. Oh, yeah, he was done. I just went solo from there on in. Did you uh, really? You just stopped playing with him and went. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! So why don't you talk about Team Side Out? And I know there were definitely different players who were on Team Side Out. So how did Team Side Out start? And who were the original members? And who were all the members in total? Okay, so um, Team Side Out started out with. Just prior to that, then uh, the routine with JJ, John Jewell, and Rick Castiglia and myself at the U.S. Open uh, 86, and we didn't play well. And um, there was something about it that really rubbed JJ the wrong way. He goes, I never want to go through that again. From now on, if you're going to do a hoop, you have to completely have a closed hoop. No putting your arms up. You have to apply yourself much more rigorously to what we're trying to do. No more of this halfway BS stuff. If you're going to do a guide, you have to absolutely do guide. We're now challenged to play at a higher level. So we're going, okay, this is what we're doing. We're now going to apply ourselves. We're going to focus in. We're going to dig deeper. No more screwing around. No more fluff. This is going to be purely technical. It's going to be state-of-the-art. And what we're going to do is going to be different than anybody else just because of that. So that was the challenge that we gave to ourselves. And it just so coincided that my brothers had a good friend who owned the side out uh, apparel line. And they were up in Pasadena. He introduced me. Um, They decided to sponsor us. They gave us a bunch of apparel. They gave us an umbrella, a bunch of cool stuff. So we, from that point forward, we were called Team Side Out. Now, the core members was myself, John Jewell, and Larry, but we also had Tommy Leitner. So the three of us, Tommy, Larry, and myself, were all huge 49er fans. So we studied the games. And our, at least to me, one of my, um, the people I tried to model myself after was Bill Walsh, the coach of the 49ers. He had this thing where if Joe Montana goes down, it's next man up. It's like the system is what carries it, not the individual. So we go, okay, well, you know, let's focus on that too. So if Tommy steps out, JJ steps in. If I step out, Tommy steps in. So we were all applying ourselves. We were all on the same page. We were able to um, sub somebody in and all be, uh, you know, know, playing under the same circumstances within the same context. So that was also a little bit unique. There was also a famous time when we were in Fort Collins and it was Larry, myself, and we're waiting on Tommy. And we're going, you know, Tommy, what's going on? He goes, um, he calls me at Bill's store, the right life, and says, I'm not going to be able to make it. I go, Tommy, what is going on? He goes, well, I'm busy with school. Um, I go, we're defending champions. We haven't lost in in years. He's like, this is, it's so important that you're here. He goes, I can't make it. So I go up to Bill. I go, so, so Bill, um, uh, I'm stepping down. Um, what do you need? Uh, I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you run the tournament. I'm not competing. He goes, no, no, you, you know, you have to play. I go, well, I don't want to put somebody in that position where we have high expectations and I don't want to be disappointed that we didn't win and blame it on 
on a friend. I don't want to do that. And he goes, no, I think you should reconsider and give this kid a tryout. His name is Pat Marin. He's from Minnesota. I think you'll like him. I go, I don't know, Bill. And he goes, yeah, come on, just, just do this for me. Give him a tryout. So I go, Hey kid, come here. Um, let's jam. So just a one-on-one jam with me and Pat Marin. And I liked his game. I go, wow, there actually is something there. And I really enjoyed it. So I go up to Larry. I go, so what do you think? You know, should we give this kid a tryout? He goes, yeah, let's give it a go. So I go, hey, Pat, um, let's jam with me, you, and Larry, uh, the three of us. And we go out, and we could feel it. It's like, yeah, there's something here. We go up to Bill, and I said, we're doing it. We're playing. And then we end up winning the tournament. And Pat Marin, when we told him, that, when we first asked him, and said, hey, Pat, do you want to play with us? He goes, oh, my God, yes. I said, okay, great. He said, where are we going? I said, we're going to the bar. So we're not going to the field to practice co-ops. We're going to go to the bar. We're going to have a couple of beers. We're going to talk about this and we're going to figure all everything out. So then the first round, Pat barely touches the disc. Larry and I carry the whole three minutes. Next round, he touches it a little bit more. And then in the third round, then we have one drop. He goes dropless. Larry goes dropless. I missed um, uh, a guidance that I tried to pick clean instead of catching it un- under my leg, and we played fantastic. So that was that continued that whole storyline of side out, but it also brought it to an end for the most part. I came back for one more go in 1994, right after I got married, and um, Tommy, Larry, and I won Santa Cruz FPA Worlds 94. That was my last uh, major title that I won. So that closed the book on Team Side Out. I actually have that video on the VHS of you in 94. Let's see if I can convert it. Oh, my God. Online. Yeah, I just just yeah. ran into it a couple of months ago in a pile of tapes. So you were having that run as Side Out, um, and there were also a lot of other really great teams during that time period. So were there some rivalries between Team Side Out and some of the other good teams? And if so, can you expand on it? Yeah, so um, that was such an, an incredibly rich time for the sport in that so, mu- so many people's game was maturing and, and actually flourishing. It was like it's really reaching that, that, that moment of greatest potential. So we were one team we, when we had to go against Team Bud Light. Uh, they were another four-person team with uh, Crazy John as the captain and 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 Joey and Richie and Chipper Bro Bell and they were formidable. There was um, also the Bayou Blasters. I mean, those guys were, were no doubt future Hall of Famers. So they were incredible. Uh, the Controllers out of Seattle. They were they were good. I mean, they were they would not drop and they would execute and they would play great all of the time. The New York teams. Um, then Art of Disc with Rick. And young Dave Schiller and Joel Rogers, even Team Monkey was good with Carl Broderson and and Danny Sullivan, um, Dive and Dave Bailey, the Colorado teams with uh, Mikey Reed, um, Bill Wright, Jonathan Willett. I mean, there were so many good teams that if you were off a little bit, you were going to get passed. You were going to get swept away. So it was really inspiring, but it also was that was the challenge is that. You knew that you had to outwork everybody. At least that was my mindset. I I was going to jam more than Joey. I was going to jam more than Mikey. I was going to jam more than anybody. And that was going to be the cornerstone of my game was just that deep experience. And, and that was the challenge that also went to Tommy. He was doing it as well. Larry was doing it as much as he could. 
So just the environment of going to these tournaments was so exciting. And all of these great teams and, and future Hall of Famers, we weren't looking at it at that at the time. But looking back on it now, you could see how deep all of these teams were. And the tournaments that we were going to, you know, there was money on it. So if I was if I wouldn't cash out, I had a dog that would go with me. And if I wouldn't if I wouldn't make cash at a tournament, the dog and I we were eating tuna sandwiches for a week. And that was all we would have for a week. And then when I'd win, it's double cheeseburgers for me and my dog. You know, that's what that was a reward at the end of it. So the money inside of uh, um, was a big driving thing along with the titles. And we were all money players. We all played for money. So did that make the rivalries that much stronger? And was there like animosity? Was there smack talk or was kind of like, oh, hey, kind of this is great environment? From my perspective, then it, we were best friends. Um, I had no animosity for anybody. They were all, again, my closest brothers. I just wanted to beat them at their best game. And that was my challenge to myself. And we all celebrate together. I buy them beer after the after the routines, all of that stuff. So I didn't, I didn't get any sense of there being animosity. And then the other thing is, from my perspective, if you weren't judged how I thought I should have been judged, let's say, then I wouldn't blame the judge. I would blame myself. I needed to work harder so it became more obvious that I was a better freestyler. So I'm never going to blame a judge. I'm going to take it back and think about it. How can I improve so now it's obvious that I'm a better jammer? That was also my mindset. Yep, that's a really good mindset because it's uh, it's the self-reflection mindset that allows you to continually improve and get better versus if it's someone else's fault, you really don't work on yourself and improve. (laughs) <laughs> another uh, another mindset I had along those lines was that um, it, it works itself out over time. There was routines that I won where I shouldn't have won, and I know that. But there was times when I didn't win when I should have won. And so I wasn't going to nitpick which ones those were. I was looking at it with broad strokes within the more of an expansive timeline. And in the end, it probably worked out just fine. Yeah, that's a really good perspective. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right. I, I feel the same way. There's lots of tournaments where I won but I don't really think I should have won, but I'll take it for the ones that I didn't win. It totally exactly. makes sense. I'm not giving the trophies back. Exactly. <laughs> so Skippy, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your uh, four person team strategy and how that actually okay. worked. Cause I have a hard time imagining how you have a fully choreographed routine where one person can step out and another person can step in and it all still works. So how, how did you put that together? How did it work? I guess the best way of explaining it was just depth of experience how many routines, I, how much jamming I did with John Jewell. And we knew each other's game perfectly. I knew I knew all of JJ's moves. He knew all of my moves. Um, and we, we had such great natural chemistry. When Tommy came along, then I was able to keep track of his development because he was going on this rocket of a learning curve, going from some fundamental skills to becoming arguably the greatest player of all time. So he was on that trajectory, but we had that chemistry thing and we had our co-ops. The other thing that, that, that we did, and certainly I did was, and I've mentioned this earlier, was I wanted to, to bring in my elements into the routine. So at some point in time, let's figure out how we're going to do the Tommy heel brush. That's going to be part of the, of the routine. There's going to be um, uh, uh, guidances. There's going to be flaws. There's going to be turbo rolls. There's going to be a kick brush. So, you know, we, we build these elements into it 
this is what's going to be in the routine. So now we just have to craft these elements together. And then we were able to do it so effectively because we had played so much together that we had our classic co-ops, if you will. So we just moving uh, like Old Glory was an old uh, co-op with JJ and I, or Cathedral with Tommy and I. Uh, Yogi Juice was another old Tommy and, and my uh, co-op, or Kansas with uh, Larry. You know, So we had all these co-ops that we could fall back on and then just craft them in. So if I step out, we knew that, that, that JJ can do Old Glory with Tommy. It's not hard. So, so I'm not sure if that, that that directly answers your question, but that's kind of. the, that's what we were doing. Sounds like it sounds like each person could do every other person's moves, and so you just had to remember all the different well, parts of the routine so you could do that, entirely, that component. But you knew what that you knew what the other person's move was that was going to be part of the routine. So how can you complement that? Another example is when Tommy does that heel kick, and he does it in practically every routine he's ever done. When I, he did that the first time to me, th- the way I looked at it was, oh, that's a turbo Calaveras roll to a screaming vacation. That's what that, that's how you do that move when he comes over to me. And then I see other people just take it and swoop it in and catch it under their leg. I go, you completely miss what that move was that he's doing. That's like the chi is out there, it's moving, it's dynamic. And now you kill it. <laughs> it's, it, I don't know, that's just me and one of my, peculiarities seeing a tommy move and seeing it not complemented correctly yeah 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 so if tommy's not in the routine who does the heel kick or does that just get scrapped and how do you yeah it does yeah okay. nobody else can do it so it goes by the way and yeah. it becomes a jj turnover to larry i don't know okay well thanks skippy for sharing that concept of how team side out worked it was a uh, Really cool to learn that it wasn't like really super tight choreography, but it was all it was more based on just structure and chemistry and uh, knowledge of each other's games. You know, it's it's pretty amazing that you guys were able to to know each other's games so well that you could just interchange somebody in a routine. I don't think I've ever had a partnership where I could just trade people in and out so quickly. But what I will say is I've I've definitely had that experience where even with a tightly choreographed routine. Like the the structure of the routine is such a, in in such a way that you you know where you have to be in the music, you know the way the disc is supposed to move, and so even if something goes wrong, you can just adapt in the moment and make it happen. And as long as your partner is right there with you, it works. So I totally get it how that could work for Team Side Out. Yeah, and I I echo what you're saying there about something being tightly choreographed and being able to count on your partner to adjust, and that comes down to that chemistry equation as well because you know we've both played with so many different people there are definitely folks that i have had better chemistry with you know like dougie simon oh my goodness we know each other's games so well that sometimes we're doing spawn and people think it's tightly choreographed so you know that chemistry is so important and and with you i've had that same kind of magic uh happen as well over the years and in some of the routines that we've done together yeah totally we've um We've done it both ways. You and I have had really tightly choreographed routines, and we've also had some just purely spontaneous routines and uh, had people afterwards ask us if they were choreographed, but they weren't. It's just, uh, it's pretty cool to know someone's game that well. It uh, opens up a lot of doors that you otherwise don't experience. Yeah, for sure. And uh, on that note, Jake, I'll talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us, 
Or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Hope to Haynesville, shooting the frisbees and live streaming freestyle frisbees.